Father, during the, during the week, remind us of uh, these things that have been prayed for, that we can continue in prayer for the several needs that were expressed, that uh, we would, in fact, bring them to you, and uh, we know that in your sovereign hand, you will deal with each individual need in your timing and in your way. So we commit those things to you. We also commit this morning to you, desiring that you would have your way amongst us, and that your word would, in fact, impact us in a way that we would not just have notes on a piece of paper, but would, in fact, leave here conformed more and more to your image. So we commit our time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we are going to look at an interesting little passage. That passage is going to give us kind of God's plan for basically, it doesn't tell us in that passage, but it kind of alludes to God's plan overall in terms of why he created all things, part of that plan of world history that I've been mentioning in the emails. And it gives us a perspective in terms of not only this big plan, but how we fit into it as well. So in the book of Romans, hopefully I'm going to get to verse 26 today. If not, there's always next week, right? And we're dealing with issues that Paul saw in the first century. He's writing to the church. This is a letter to the church, even though it deals with issues of unbelievers and the doctrine of salvation or soteriology. He writes to believers. That's why he uses freely theological words, some of them even unfamiliar to a lot of people in the church. So he's writing that we have a clear understanding of what the gospel message is all about so that we can simplify and make it very clear and plain to the unbelieving world. So this is written to believers in the city of Rome, and I've shown you some photographs of that, kind of a place that was very central in the first century, Circus Maximus, two photographs there. So believers would have been part of that culture. They would have been familiar with these things. That's who Paul is writing to. The passage begins, remember, it's just one sentence that runs all the way from verse 21 to 26. The American Standard breaks it into two, but in the Greek text, it's one sentence. So it's kind of a complex sentence with lots of little parts. But the heart of it is the righteousness of God has been manifested. Everything else is telling us something about this righteousness of God a perfection of God, his very nature, it is manifested, it is made known, or it is revealed. So everything else is just telling us something about that. I'm not going to go through the details. We've uh, gone through it. This is our sixth week in this sentence. But we'll summarize it as we get closer later on. So, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. This is one of the aspects of how God manifested this righteousness. It was a public display. It was a public demonstration. In fact, the word that is used in the next phrase or the next sentence in the New American Standard, and notice New American Standard has to supply 
a subject and a verb to make it a new sentence, but in the Greek text, it's just a participle. This was to demonstrate. In some contexts, that word is even used with the idea of to prove something, like an experiment. In other words, you perform an experiment to prove that your hypothesis is correct. And if you can demonstrate it, you in that proof, then you give substance or validity to that idea. That's what God is doing, and he does it, and he did it publicly. Remember, we stress that. Public arrest, all of the public aspects of the crucifixion, all the events that preceded, they were all in plain view, public, before several uh, government officials, Jewish officials, arrest and trial, crucifixion on a main highway where criminals were executed between two public executions as well. Everything was public. And what it's talking about there is that this was to demonstrate the righteousness of God. The cross, the crucifixion, makes evident what God was doing and has been doing and eventually will complete at a later time. We'll talk about that, but this is a public display. And we talked about the idea of a propitiation. And just to remind you, the word itself, when it's used in the Old Testament translation, the Greek translation, it refers to the mercy seat that was in the temple where once a year the high priest would enter with a bowl of a sacrificed blood of an animal for the atonement of the nation, Yom Kippur, that's the day of atonement. He would sprinkle blood on that mercy seat. This is what God instructed and it was to be a demonstration of God accepting that sacrifice. That sacrifice temporarily satisfied the righteous requirements of God's law. He requires that payment for sin to be made. Payment is death. We're going to look at that in a moment. And there was a substitute, the idea of substitutionary death. That animal represented the sin of mankind. It died, sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. So the Greek word, hilasterion, propitiation, in the Greek translation 21 times, it is translated with this word, and that word means mercy seat. If you translate from the, from the Greek to the English, it's always mercy seat. So you could say Jesus is the mercy seat that satisfies all the legal requirements of God's justice. Remember, we're talking about courtroom terms here. 21 times in the Septuagint. There's another word related to it. Elasmas in the New Testament occurs two times. We look those up, 1 John 2, 2, and also 1 John 4, 4, 10. Or it's translated, the American Standard, propitiation. Now, the idea is that it's at that point that redemption is, from God's perspective, acknowledged redemption with the blood 
in the Old Testament, blood of animals. Hebrews tells us once for all, the shed blood of Jesus Christ paid the price, paid the redemption price. Redemption is the idea of buying out of slavery, essentially, theologically. So redemption with the price of his blood and the place of propitiation or the place of atonement is that mercy seat. And it was at that point that God meets man and it took a mediator. Jesus is the mediator and the sacrifice and the propitiation. So it is a satisfaction. In fact, you could substitute the idea every time you see the word propitiation, only a few times in the New Testament, substitute the word satisfaction of God's legal requirements. In other words, God is satisfied with the ultimate sacrifice that was anticipated throughout the Old Testament. We'll get to that in a moment. That's what propitiation is. Got it? So, we've been looking at all the key terms, law, righteousness, justification, grace, redemption, and now, last week, we completed looking at propitiation. God's justice satisfied. Now, there's a relationship between God's love. In fact, there's a relationship between all the perfections. You can't separate the perfections of God and view God isolated in terms of his love. You can't view him isolated in terms of his justice. You can't view him isolated in terms of his wrath. They all are intertwined. He is one. There's a simplicity about God. There's a unity about God. So they all work together. They're all necessary. Unfortunately, today, the church in general, overall, stresses the love of God. That's okay. But it's not okay to stress the love of God at the expense of the holiness, righteousness, justice, and uh, the what we might describe as severe perfections. They work together. In fact, God doesn't just kind of overlook or brush over or sweep under the rug man's sin. It must be dealt with. It, his righteous nature must be satisfied. That's propitiation. So the justice of God is satisfied. And that comes together at the cross brings everything together. So it's a display, basically, of God's glory. That's propitiation. Whom God displayed publicly, verse 25, as a propitiation in his blood. And interestingly, it almost seems out of place, but through faith. Referring back, in other words, God is satisfied as we believe that that sacrifice satisfies all the legal requirements of God. That's the stress of this passage, and we're going to see it's going to be expanded in verse 27 and the rest of the, the rest of the chapter. So this is how we experience God's righteous wrath poured out on Jesus Christ as our substitute. We trust that God is satisfied with what Christ has done. And in that, we have redemption, we have justification, we have salvation, we have all of the blessings of what was provided 
by Jesus Christ on the cross. So it's through faith. You don't want to overlook that. The next part of verse 25 talks about explaining how God dealt with sin in the past. So there's a past purpose that the crucifixion makes uh, clear and satisfied in terms of what God is doing historically. There's a plan that God orchestrates and that God initiated in eternity past. That plan is working out. The most significant event in that plan is what God did to satisfy his justice on the cross. So let's take a look at that past purpose of the demonstration. And this is just a chart of all of the parts and how they all fit together. We've gone over that several times. It's a display. Remember that key phrase? Because that's the key phrase of the independent clause of this long sentence. Everything else is just telling you something about that independent clause. A display or manifestation of God's righteousness. It's apart from the law. It's witnessed by the Old Testament. It's for believers, verses 22 and 23. We enter into it by grace, undeserved. There's nothing we can do to obtain it except by trusting, by faith, for believers. And it's as a result of what Christ has done. That's at the heart of this whole sentence. What Christ did on the cross and what he did on the cross, that redemption, he paid the price in his blood, satisfied all the legal requirements of God's righteous nature and law. And it includes the past as well, where God has forbearance. He has basically the idea of tolerating something. God has tolerated mankind from creation to the crucifixion. And it's at the crucifixion that he dealt with sin once and for all. So that's also in verse 25. This is to prove, you could even substitute that idea, to prove his righteousness or to demonstrate it. And we've already seen that it's a public display. Make sense? Following so far? I was just going to say that that is so important because if God had not done it that way, then he blamed favorites to forgive some and hold it against others. Yes. And that is the one unique thing about our God that we, he doesn't just say, oh, well, you don't, you know, it doesn't matter, but this person over here is forever lost. Right. But what you did is, is irrelevant, which a lot of the other religions will have you to unique. Right. God somehow just sweeps it under the rug or ignores it. The fact that God did this, his mercy, his love, but also the justice, the righteousness. Right. All the hardness. He's not a hard God, but he treats everyone equally. And that is a huge thing about the Christian faith than the other religions. Because other gods always play favorites, and Mm -hmm. you might be chosen at the expense of someone else. Exactly. So that is why on the outline sheet I have the display of God's righteousness for man, because every the emphasis of that passage deals with what God has done for you and I. Redemption, forgiveness, all the issues we dealt with, justification, all of that is for the benefit of mankind. But the crucifixion also did things for God himself, the Father. And what it does is demonstrates his righteousness in terms of that substitute 
and that satisfaction. So this was to demonstrate his righteousness again. So we have the same idea, somewhat repeated, except we have a different word, and this word has more the idea of proving. Linda. So how what was in the cup that he said? Say that again. What was in the cup? cup At the Last Supper? No, at the... Oh, in the garden. He used a figure of speech, wrath. In other words, God's judgment, God's wrath for sin. We're going to expand upon that. In fact, the next phrase. So he's demonstrating his righteousness. Now he's going to expand and explain it. See how all the parts are fitting together? Because in the forbearance, in fact, here we go, because in the forbearance of God, what is this idea of forbearance? That has the idea of God tolerating. He, in fact, is not satisfied and was not satisfied in the Old Testament. It was not until Messiah came. So let's take a look at some of the background there. And what he did he, in his forbearance, he passed over sins previously committed. Previous to what? Cross. Previous to the death of Christ on the cross, God put up with, you could say, tolerated, you could say, mankind for those thousands of years. Because in his plan, remember the crucifixion was before the foundations of the world. In other words, it's in this broad plan that the scriptures makes clear. This is one of the passages that explains some of that. In fact, one writer, Godet, a commentator, says the following, For 4,000 years, the spectacle presented by mankind, in other words, the spectacle of sin, in the whole... (laughs) We needed that... uh... Timing was perfect. Yeah, good timing on that one. For 4,000 years, a spectacle presented by mankind to the whole moral universe, including angelic creatures. Remember, angels are observing what goes on in terms of what God is doing. An angel might have raised the issue. God, you have made certain statements. How come you have not followed through on those statements? Satan does that even... Even now, he's the accuser. Exactly. So for all the moral universe, including angelic creatures, was, so to speak, a continual scandal, with the exception of some great examples of judgments, Genesis Flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, God intervened to judge, with the exception of those, some great examples of judgments, divine righteousness seemed to be asleep. In fact, that's one of the arguments and still nothing, you know, I doesn't care, nothing happens. Exactly. And then he goes on, one might even have asked if it existed. Does God's righteousness even exist? Men sinned here below, yet they lived. They sinned on and yet reached in safety a hoary old age. Where, Where were the wages of sin? Remember the wages of sin are what? Death. Death. Where was that? It was this relative impunity which rendered a solemn manifestation necessary. Kind of a difficult last statement there. In other words, made the crucifixion of Christ 
necessary. Very good statement there, Godet. So before the cross, you could have raised your fists and said, God, where is justice? Justice has not been affected. That's why the cross is so important. So in the passage in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, and by the way, this is the first prophetic statement of all of the Bible. This is before sin entered. This is the creation. This is Adam and Eve given responsibility because they were not robots. They were created with volition to freely love the Creator, or they were given freedom to reject what the Creator said. And this is the statement that makes them accountable. So this is Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. The idea there is there are these thousands of trees in the garden. You can gorge yourself. (laughs) Of course, you didn't have sin, so you wouldn't have that desire. But you could eat and eat. In fact, it's a, a Hebrew infinitive absolute. And what that idea is, you have the verb and the noun together, and it kind of stresses this idea. It's translated, eat freely, or you could eat and eat and eat is the idea. Say that again. Without limit. Without limit. Very good. So you could freely eat. So God is good to mankind, except he made, in other words, you have the option here of just one exception, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Crystal clear. For in the day that you eat from it, what? You shall surely die. Another infinitive absolute in the Hebrew text. In other words, you are going to die, the verbal idea, dead. You're going to die dead. In the day that you eat of it. In the day that Adam and Eve ate, what happened? Did they die? Yes and no. Yes and no. Very good answer. (laughs) Wise woman. Yes, in that every aspect of their nature experienced death. They died spiritually. They died emotionally. Now they have fear for the first time. They died relationally. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. So relationship is broken. They died intellectually. Now their minds are clouded. They don't see reality. How can you hide from an ever-present God? Their theology is already twisted. So they died in every way. And I would contend that their individual cells started to decay and die that very moment that they ate. They didn't cease breathing In Adam's case, 900 and, what is it, 30 years or whatever. But his, biologically, his cells began to die the moment they ate. So physically, they died as well. Malthusalem. You're saying then that this is when Newton's second law started to take effect? I think so. I do too. too. The second law of thermodynamics came into effect at that moment that they ate. That's right. Okay. Jeremiah. So, so later on when God tells them about the curse, that he will curse this, has the curse already happened or are additional things at that point? He's announcing it. He's In other words, so what happened? He, he's explaining what happened. That's the way I would take it. Okay? 
So, well, what happened? They didn't keel over dead in the, the day that they ate. They didn't cease breathing. I think they died, but they didn't cease breathing. So, Just some, I'm not saying they hold this, but there are some groups that would say even before the fall that died anyway, man was born. Yeah, that goes. There's scripture kind of contradicts that. Yeah, Romans five twelve through fourteen contradicts that. Okay. Because death came by Adam, and it refers to the <laughs> passage. Bill, this passage is very interesting, and it, it helps us to see the many dimensions of death. We tend to think of death only physically, but of ceasing to breathe and the heart stopping. Exactly. Exactly. But this passage is really really illustrating to us that there are many. Aspects. Things die tied into the right. Into death. And by the way, until a person comes to Christ, he remains dead. Yeah. Spiritually. <laughs> Spiritually, even emotionally, yeah. even intellectually, the mind is darkened. He doesn't see spiritual things. Yep, exactly. So, Ephesians uh, 4. So when Paul refers to death in 5, to this death, does it specify what aspect of death you know, he's referring to? I think he's speaking generally. The whole Just, thing. Yeah. And I think biblically, if you look at death in that way, I think it uh, it fits virtually all of the scriptures that deal with it. And then in 3.15, remember, this is the chapter where they died, if you will. God makes an amazing promise that he's going to deal with that issue of sin. And you could take that verse, and I do. In fact, I'm going to expand on it in our Israel meeting. I take that verse to be a summary of God's plan and God's view of all of world history. Because he's not going to complete that process. The process is not going to be completed until the last event that's recorded in the Bible of world history. So that's a summary of all of world history. I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's the serpent. In other words, there's going to be a conflict between mankind, essentially, epitomized by the woman. Between you and the woman, there's going to be a constant spiritual battle that's going to be waged throughout world history. And between your seed and her seed, in other words, it's not just the woman, but her descendants. And the interesting thing, this is the only passage except one other where it refers to the seed of the woman. The idea women don't have the seed everywhere else, the seed of the man. This is the only passage except for one other in the New Testament that speaks of the seed of the woman. And I think it's an allusion, we don't know that till you get to the New Testament, It's an allusion to the virgin birth. In other words, the product of the woman, Jesus Christ himself. And between your seed and her seed, there's going to be this continual, in the descendants, there's going to be a constant spiritual battle. And he, notice it's capitalized, referring to her seed. It's a very special and particular seed. Paul in Galatians said, singular, your seed this passage doesn't make clear, it's not to get to the New Testament, that that's Messiah, the coming Messiah. He shall bruise you on the head. Who's he speaking to here? The serpent. He's going to inflict a fatal blow to Satan, basically. 
This took place on the cross. Because the next phrase, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's not going to be a fatal blow. And it's an allusion to death and resurrection. That makes sense? Now, it's not clear here. This is what's called the Evangelium, or the first announcement of the gospel. And in it, I think it has the whole plan of God, at least one aspect of it, in terms of God dealing with evil. God dealing with sin that is going to take place from that incident in the garden and won't be completed till the end of world history. So we can put this on a timeline. Linda. So you will bruise him on Taking it in its totality is an allusion to the crucifixion. It's not clear in that passage. In other words, it's not a fatal it's not a fatal uh, blow. The blow to Satan is a fatal blow, but that to uh, the Messiah is not. It's an illusion. It's cryptic. It's not clear. But when you take all of the passage into account, and particularly the New Testament, that's probably a good way or the best way to take it. So, we have eternity to eternity. This is all of world history. I promise that I give you all of world history on one slide. Here it is. All right? We have creation, Genesis 1 and 2. What do we have in chapter 3? So we have the first major event, creation. The second major event, we're going to have the fall. In the unbelieving mind, the unbelieving thinking, evil just exists. It's part of existence. In other words, it has no beginning, infinity, past, it has no end. So it just it just is. It's just what exists. That's the unbelieving worldview. Doesn't have a solution, doesn't have a beginning, doesn't have an end. That's the unbelieving worldview. It's only the Bible that tells us we have a fall, and beginning with that, Genesis three fifteen says that God is gonna deal with evil and it's gonna take all of world history. So I take it as a summary of world history. It has a beginning that's in the garden when they ate of the fruit. And the Romans passage is telling us that God passed over sin and he's been passing over it. And he's given kind of examples of judgment. What does judgment look like? It looks like a Genesis flood. It looks like Sodom and Gomorrah. It looks like what God did to destroy the nation of Israel when they apostatize. It looks like Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, where God intervenes. It looks like the judgment of Babylon when they collapsed. That's what judgment looks like. Okay, And on the cross, sin was ultimately judged. So from the beginning, God has been passing over sin, allowing a temporary system of sacrifices to continue, and even those are examples of the ultimate sacrifice that would take place when Christ died on the cross. Bill? If that were my chart, I Uh-oh. would move that arrowhead to the cross where it says dealt with. Yep. i move it to the cross, and then I would put a second arrow coming from the right with the same arrowhead going to the cross, okay. showing that all sin prior to the cross was dealt with there, and all sin future was dealt with there. Okay. 
I'm I see what you're saying, and I'm I'm not disagreeing. My my arrow kind of represents the progress of time as well. Yeah, okay. just the dealt with brought to my attention. So it was dealt with the cross. Yes. Okay. But sin continues. Yeah, and that's why evil continues. From the right. Yeah. Because it shows that the past the sin focus. is dealt with at the cross, and future sin is dealt with. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I I don't disagree with that. Eventually, there's going to be a final judgment. That's why I'm looking ahead on my arrow. But uh, I think both would work. In fact, I think I'll put a double arrow there. Yeah, that would be better. Because the there's a final judgment, but the final judgment is not the dealing of sin that's already been dealt with. Dealt with. The final judgment is bringing people to recognize that the sin. Exactly. Very good. We'll change the chart. So final judgment. So it's only the Bible that shows that evil has a certain shelf life, you might say. But it had a beginning, and God is going to deal with it in a final way. And it's going to be ultimately, Revelation chapter 20, confined to the lake of fire, into eternity. So there's eternal damnation, but it's confined. Honey, did you have a... Yeah, and so does sin, though. They kind of go together. Yeah. But there's world history on one slide in terms of God dealing with the issue of sin. So it has a beginning and it has an end. It's only the unbelieving worldview that doesn't see that there's a beginning and an end, but sees it as just what is, just what exists without a beginning and an end, or an end. All right? So God is demonstrating in the past, passing over sin, all the sins of past history, and once it's dealt with, it'll impact everything in the future. You could also say, too, that uh, once... At some point, you know, it's like the court has passed a sentence, but sometimes there's a delay between what the judge says and when the actual uh, imprisonment uh, penalty goes into effect. So there, at some point, the the penalty will be enforced, and then there will be nothing. Sin will not penetrate that judgment ever again. Yes. Good. So... This passage emphasizes the glory of God. Man falls short of it. Verse 23. We've seen the righteousness of God stressed throughout the passage. In other words, he is the standard. He is, in fact, in conformity with who he is. Perfect righteousness. He deals with us by grace. And we'll come back to that. The idea of God's grace. Verse 24. God is sovereign in that he is orchestrating all of history. In fact, he passed over sin, knowing that ultimately he would deal with it on the cross. Working sovereignly, all of those events of the cross are tied to predictions in the Old Testament. God sovereignly working and bringing them together. And now God is patient or forbearing. That's another perfection of God. We see the glory of God. And all of these basically are displayed on the cross. So verse 26, it has a present purpose of this demonstration. 
a present proof, you might even say, because that's what the word could be translated, demonstration in the text. So not only do we have propitiation and forbearance, but we have God as justifier. There's all of the parts. So there's verse 26 in this long, complicated sentence. Got it? Okay. Linda. No, the glory of God is God displaying many aspects, the multi aspects of who He is, or the perfections of who He is. So we give God. We only ascribe glory. We can't add anything to God. We ascribe by acknowledging His glory, and we can verbalize it, and we can live in such a way that we glorify God. Verse 26, for the demonstration, what's that demonstration? That proof, what he's just talked about, whom God displayed publicly. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So now we're talking about now, from the first century, and we could include ourselves now, in terms of what God has already accomplished. Righteousness at the present time. So there's a present aspect, there's a past passing over, and there's a present display of God's righteousness, and God's greatest display of love is justification. And that's what he's going to talk about, justification. So we have holiness and love coming together. We have righteousness and love coming together. We have wrath and love coming together. And we have the perfections of God so that he would be just. Not that he becomes just, but that he would be demonstrated as just. In other words, you could see it. It's visible on the cross. God is demonstrated to be just. And remember that word? We looked at that when we were talking about righteousness. Just is what? Same word. In fact, let me remind you, here's the terms, dikaios. It can be translated righteous or it can be translated just. It's the same word. Same word as what we looked at before. And then there's the verbal form that we'll look at in a moment. But anyway, oops. so God is love. They come together because what he has done and he has justice or he's a just God. The justice of God is you. These are the perfections of God. They're displayed on the cross. In fact, every attribute of God is displayed on the cross. Mercy, compassion, patience, everything else. Patience is in this passage. Not only will he be just, but he's also the justifier. Remember that word? What is that word? That's the same as the word for just. The justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And notice how he closes the important aspect of just trusting that what he did makes way and clears the way so that we can have a relationship with God, and that's the only way. It's apart from works. He started with that. He's going to expand that in the next passage. So it's only by trusting in what he did. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. So he is going to be demonstrated to be just. That's why it's for God. The cross does something in terms of God. It displays his justice. And he is also the one that does things for us. There's the love aspect in that he has justified us. 
unrighteous people can now have a relationship with a righteous God, and it satisfies all of his legal requirements. So he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And if you remember, we have the noun form, translated just, in that passage, and we have the verb form, dikaiao, which means to declare righteous or Sometimes it's translated justify. We use two words, or a word and a phrase. In the Greek text, it's the same word, it's just the verbal form, to justify or to declare righteous. Same idea, same word. And we have a play on words in this passage. We have the noun, dikaios. We have the verb, which in this case it's a participle, but it's the verbal root. It's a participle. And it's a play on words so that we have similar sounding in the Greek. It's dikaios, and then it's dikaiao, but it's a participial form. Let me see if I can pronounce it here. Okay, it's uh, dikaion, the accusative form, and then it's dikaiunta. So if you see the two with an and in the middle or a kai, if you wanted to translate it so it sounded like, you could translate it righteous and the righteous fire. <laughs> the one who makes righteous or declares righteous. That's kind of stretching it a little bit. If you want to use more words, you could say the righteous and the one who declares righteous, but now you're adding a lot of words and it kind of messes up the play on words. It's nice and clean in the Greek text and probably the best way is the way it's translated in the New American Standard. The New American Standard, just and the justifier kind of yeah. makes it sound right. But you got the ideas here? That's the main thing. Okay. So, God displays his glory on the cross. He displays both his love and his justice. We can see all of the perfections of God displayed on the cross. His righteousness, his patience, his mercy, his compassion... You can't think of an aspect, in this case, both his love and his justice come together. He can love mankind, he can forgive sin, because he's dealt with sin, and maintain his righteous, holy character. Maintains his integrity in all that he does. Yes. So who wants to... Jenny, since you guys are going to abandon us. (laughs) (laughs) 